Welcome to Childhood Conversations with Kate and Carrie. Welcome back. Carrie and I are so glad to see you, and I'm glad that you have joined us for another conversation. And today's conversation might be a little different depending on your experience with uh, neurodiversity in your program or kids with some sort of disability in your classroom. So Carrie and I are going to talk a little bit about how do you manage that in your program, uh, perhaps maybe even how to find resources available to you and the parents so that you're not thinking you have to do this all on your own. So with that, Carrie, I want you to tell us a little bit about, I want you to, I know you have at least two students um, in the past who've been part of your program system, and I'd like you to give us a story. It's pick one and we'll start there and tell me a little bit about how that worked in your program and what kind of resources were available and how you found those. I mean, I've had kids who have mobility issues. I've had kids who are low functioning on the autistic spectrum. I've had kids with hearing issues, vision issues. I was a program that, uh, you know, I really worked hard to be as accommodating as possible to physical and um, intellectual differences as possible. We had a parent in a wheelchair at one of our programs for a while. Um, language differences, all that kind of fun stuff. That was just, that's my bias. That's what I want. I want a diverse <laughs> student body and a diverse parent body. Um, so I had one child um, who came to our program. It was low, very low functioning autistic child. Um, and when he first enrolled at our program, we had an additional aid that was paid for by an outside source for up to six weeks um, to see if he could acclimatize to our program. And if we had needed the aid more than six weeks, they would have tried to find additional funding. Um, we ended up not needing him the entire six weeks. Um, but that way, that child had someone who was a hundred percent there for them, but they were able to be in a traditional after-school program. The bus dropped him off. We picked it, you know, he would walk in, um, and having that person allowed the staff to learn how to accommodate his stimming, his, um, behaviors that were not neurotypical, um, that would happen in the classroom and make the teachers more comfortable having a kid who had what would be perceived as a lot of needs. Um, it turns out as long as he had, you know, there were three or four activities he absolutely loved. And we figured out a routine for how to convey to him that it was time to go outside when it was time to go outside and snack time. And, you know, but the teachers didn't have any of that knowledge. They didn't have the, the tools for making a visual calendar that he could manipulate with um, his needs so that he could see, aha, it's time to do this next thing. And so having that aid ended up also being staff training for the staff, <laughs> as well as being somebody who immediately knew how to go get additional resources that we were going to need for him. Um and that kid ended up staying with our program for three years and he was great. And my kids, um, my personal children <laughs> um, still occasionally talk about him uh, because he was such a part of the whole program. And at first, some of the kids were like, this is a little weird. But again, 
it just became, oh, well, this kid is in our class and okay, they would go play with him and invite him into their play. And sometimes he would say yes. And sometimes he wouldn't say anything. And sometimes he would say no. Um, and so that was great. And the parents came knowing that they had that um, aid available at the beginning. So the parents had done the research um, and uh, that that's how that one worked. Um, okay, so hold on. So uh, did you do anything different to um, market or attract these families? How did these families find you? Um, you mentioned that this family actually came with the resource is there a way to, to tell, is that a generic resource that might be in most cities? Or if you want to be a program that is more diverse, what might be the first place to start if you're looking to take um, more behavior-based? So I think that the reason why I sort of became the neighborhood program uh, for kids with um, differences was actually because there was a special needs campus near us. And I went over there and introduced myself when we opened our doors and was like, is there anything that we can do to help you? And so we helped with some playground cleanup days and stuff like that. Um, so it was me being active in the community. I think that's probably how the first family found me because when they were at a different school, not that one, because they were in a mainstream school, um, they asked, you know, where, where can my child go after school? I want them to have some playtime um, after school. And so they talked to the other schools in the area and I got referred. I'm 90% sure that's how that happened. <laughs> I have no idea how the other families found me. Um, <laughs> probably partially some of my messaging, some of my ads, um, I'm guessing. I don't really know. Or just in the, um, there, there is a network of um, chat groups and, you know, moms groups and parents groups of parents who have kids who are in the special needs program at the elementary school. Um, and then some of those kids weren't actually elementary, you know, so I think it just through community is how people found me, I think. Well, I, I think that's purpose. Well, and that those are great things to think about. So if you look at your local elementary school or charter school or even private schools, you know, letting them know if they've got special needs teachers, letting those special needs teachers that you're interested and willing to support kids in an after school or in a summer program, or maybe it's just on C days, maybe you want to start someplace simple. Um, and then have those conversations specifically with the teachers at those elementary schools. Um, and then just traditional public elementary, but also um, don't well, rule and, out charter schools and private schools. And the private, the traditional public school, they also have kids who are under the age of five. Mm -hmm. So between three and five who need additional assistance. Yeah. And especially on those days off. Yeah. Um, and so that's where you might just want to make sure. And so if you haven't already had conversations uh, with your local elementary school, especially those that might be within walking or really, really short bus drives of you, uh, if you haven't talked to, again, charter schools, private schools, um, perhaps even reached out to homeschooling communities, because there are some homeschooling families that want that after school um respite if they have a kid with some special needs that maybe they need to um, have their five-year-old come to your preschool 
come to your program after school so that they can spend time with their other children, helping them with more advanced subjects. You never know what the reasons are. So making sure that you let people know that you may or may not have staff that are skilled, but you're willing and that your staff are willing to learn and incorporate. So, you know, don't make it sound like your staff are all special needs trained, Right. but if you have staff who are willing to be flexible and you think you've got a good personality as a classroom, because that's a big thing too. We all know our classrooms have a personality and they change every year. <laughs> so if you think you've got a classroom of kids that could handle, um, something or like that, that need or sometimes need. you they need no, somebody true. else in the classroom because they're having a hard time with developing their empathy um so like the the research is very clear the able-bodied children get as much if not more out of having a child with a difference in the classroom than the child with a difference does both sides benefit tremendously. Um, and so if you've got a rough and tumble classroom, that might be the ideal time <laughs> to be like, Hey, this person's on the waiting list and, um, has a hearing loss. I think we'll go ahead and move them to the top of the waiting list and have them be the next child to come into that classroom because that classroom needs some help with empathy. Um, and it's amazing what that will do. Um, and I think so many, directors are scared and so many teachers are scared of having a kid in their classroom who has any kind of diagnosis. But I bet if you asked around your staff, a lot of them have some sort of diagnosis. You've probably got staff with ADHD. You've probably got staff with vision issues or hearing issues or maybe they wore braces on their feet when they were little or braces on their teeth when they were little or, you know, they have asthma. I mean, so many diagnoses in your staff. Why are we so scared of accepting children into your program who have a diagnosis? Ah, drives me crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. So definitely make sure that you um, work with your programs, work with your staff, um, and, and figure out ways to make that happen. Because one of the things when you're looking at your classroom, if you want to be accredited, is that you want those kids represented and on the walls and in books. So we want to make sure that the kids are getting an opportunity to see others like them. And that means also you want them to be able to see others who are different. And so, yeah, my third child actually went to a preschool that was um, specifically designed to be paired with kids on um, different types of learning spectrums. And so although um, they were three at the time, most of the students in the classroom were five. Um, and so there were a group of three-year-olds from a preschool, and then they were with a group of five-year-olds in an elementary school. And they went to the elementary school. Um, the preschool provided the teacher. We paid the preschool. Um, but the kids were in a, a integrated classroom with um, five-year-old students that had some developmental disabilities. There we go. <laughs> I was like, on. they were, they needed support. And so this was a way for them to, for, for, and the three-year-olds, like you said, probably got as much out of it, if not more than the five-year-olds. And the, and another thing I want to sort of make sure we talk about is the fact that you may not know when you look at a kid that there's something going on and the parents may be like, Hey, 
So they're going to have physical therapy three days a week. Is it okay if they have that here? And you can be like, I've seen people go like completely wall-eyed when that question is asked. Now, three times a week is an awful lot. Um, So you might negotiate it down to, we can do two of them and then you have to arrange for the third one somewhere else. But the thing is 90% of the time, they're not asking you to provide an empty room for the kid and the therapist to work together. They're expecting the kid and the therapist to work together in the classroom with the stuff that's in the classroom, because that's the deal (laughs) is that they're trying to help the child to be able to do what needs to be done in the classroom or at home. So physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, all of those can happen at your center. And occasionally they might need to be in a space other than the classroom, but that can be a hallway. That can be your office. Which takes us to the other kid that I want us to touch about. We've got about five minutes to do this, Carrie, is I want you to talk to me about having kids in your program with a physical disability. Uh, What does that mean? What are things that we have to be? I mean, are there regulations that we have to? I mean, I know that we all have ADA compliance pieces as far as bathrooms and whatnot. How does that work into kids that might want to enroll in our program. So you need to, you are legally required to accept any child um, who meets the requirements of your program, meaning they're the right developmental age, uh, et cetera. So if you have somebody who wants to enroll and the child has, uh, uses a wheelchair or uses crutches or uses a scooter, you have to accept them. So again, I've seen people get like very freaked out by that concept, but your building is designed with hallways that are at least three feet wide and doorways that are at least three feet wide so that you can accommodate wheelchairs, walkers, uh, et cetera. Mobility aids is what they're called as a group, right? So Your building's already set up for that. Um, There may be small areas that you have to step up one or two steps or you have to step down three steps or something like that. But most of the time, there's a way around that. You can put in a ramp. Uh, (laughs) The playgrounds sometimes take a little bit more work because maybe you're using pea gravel. Um, I have pushed people in wheelchairs on pea gravel. I will tell you, it is not a fun time. I do not recommend it. I do not. Um, that's where you look into with, with a grant to get a wheelchair specifically for that pea gravel. Cause they do make them now where they didn't really have them available 20 plus years ago, uh, when that particular student was in your classroom. So, um, and I have a child in my family who needed mobility aids from time to time. Um, and so you can get grants to make, to change the fall surfacing on your playground or in parts of your playground, the parts that that child likes to engage in. Like they're, you know, if a child is needing mobility aids, they're probably not going to be really interested in running around on your open grassy area to run around like a chicken with their head cut off like the other kids, because that's going to be a lot of work for them. (laughs) But there should be part of that grassy area where they could access and sit and enjoy the grass um, getting on, you know, having swings that they can use. If you have a swing set, um, 
having cars, bicycles, things like that, that they could use that are hand pedaled instead of foot pedaled. All of that you can find grants for. And the parents may not know where to go, but the school district is an excellent resource in this situation, as are any therapists that are coming to your program. Um, And those parent support groups that you want to help those parents plug into if they're not already plugged into them. So finding those support groups, there are some for teachers, but there aren't as many for early childhood teachers as there are for parents, (laughs) right? Because more parents need that help than- So when you're talking about support groups, are you talking about like literally social media groups and forums, or are you talking about physical go in person? Both are available usually. Okay. If you live in a really small town and you have the only kid with cerebral palsy in the entire town, maybe you have to go with um, an online support group, but there's probably one within 45 minutes, unless you're in Alaska, (laughs) where you could go and there would be a physical support group. So whichever one works for them, you can help them find it use Google Foo. Um, If you're not great at Googling, find somebody you know who is good at Googling and have them help you find support groups for those parents so that you can have help finding grant money to make your program more accessible and more exciting for the children with disabilities that you may enroll. Yeah. And always check at your state level because regardless of what state you are in um, across the United States, you have um, right now, even more than ever, you have some additional um, discretionary funding that's happening at the statewide level that they're trying to give to childcare programs to help them be more sustainable, help them improve their um, capacity to be able to serve the populations that need the service. And if this is a population in your community that's not being served, um, you know, definitely go up the food chain or, you know, I'm more like forget the food chain of going to the top. So if you ever um, can't figure out where to go someplace, make sure that you schedule um, a strategy session with Carrie and I, uh, Kate at Texas Director or Carrie at TexasDirector.org. And we can absolutely help you find one of those resources. Carrie's got one more thing and then we're going to see you next week. (laughs) um, Easter Seals, United Way, and local hospitals are great places to start looking for those grants. Um, United Way is amazing at helping to find the grants and the grants um, uh, enabler. (laughs) If you're not a nonprofit, they may need to partner you with another nonprofit to get that grant to you. Um, I think they're an amazing resource. So that's my last thought on it. And, um, thank you for joining us for this discussion about incorporating extra people for special needs and getting the resources you need to support special needs kids in your program, kids with special needs, not special needs kids. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Child Care Conversations with Kate and Carrie. Want to learn more? Check out our website at texasdirector.org. And if you've learned anything today, leave us a comment below and share the show.